Section 1 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 4, Part 3, by Alexandra Dumas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nadia Fernandez. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 4, Part 3, by Alexandra Dumas. Section 1. Nizida, 1825. If our readers, tempted by the Italian proverb about seeing Naples and then dying, were to ask us what is the most favourable moment for visiting the enchanted city, we should advise them to land at the Mole or at Mejalina on a fine summer day and at the hour when some solemn procession is moving out of the cathedral. Nothing can give an idea of the profound and simple-hearted emotion of this populace, which has enough poetry in its soul to believe in its own happiness. The whole town adorns herself and attires herself like a bride for her wedding. The dark facades of marble and granite disappear beneath hangings of silk and festoons of flowers. The wealthy display their dazzling luxury, the poor drape themselves proudly in their rags. Everything is light, harmony and perfume. The sound is like the hum of an immense hive. Interrupted by a thousandfold outcry of joy, impossible to describe. The bells repeat their sonorous sequences in every key. The arcades echo afar with the triumphal marches of military bands. The sellers of sherbet and watermelons sing out their deafening flourish from throats of copper. People form into groups. They meet, question, gesticulate. There are gleaming looks, eloquent gestures, picturesque attitudes. There is a general animation, an unknown charm, an indefinable intoxication. Earth is very near to heaven. And it is easy to understand that if God were to banish death from this delightful spot, the Neapolitans would desire no other paradise. The story that we are about to tell opens with one of these magical pictures. It was the day of the Assumption in the year 1825. The sun had been up for some four or five hours, and the long Via de Forcella lighted from end to end by its slanting rays, cut the town in two like a ribbon of watered silk. The lava pavement, carefully cleaned, shone like any mosaic, and the royal troops, with their proudly waving plumes, made a double living hedge on each side of the street. The balconies, windows and terraces the stands with their unsubstantial balustrades and the wooden galleries set up during the night were loaded with spectators and looked not unlike the boxes of a theatre. An immense crowd, forming a medley of the brightest colours, invaded the reserved space and broke through the military barriers, here and there like an overflowing torrent. 
these intrepid sightseers, nailed to their places, would have waited half their lives without giving the least sign of impatience. At last, about noon, a cannon shot was heard, and a cry of general satisfaction followed it. It was the signal that the procession had crossed the threshold of the church. In the same moment, a charge of carabineers swept off the people who were obstructing the middle of the street. The regiments of the line opened floodgates for the overflowing crowd, and soon nothing remained on the causeway but some scared dog, shouted at by the people, hunted off by the soldiers, and fleeing at full speed. The procession came out through the Via de Vescovato. First came the guilds of merchants and craftsmen, the hatters, weavers, bakers, butchers, cutlers, and goldsmiths. They wore the prescribed dress, black coats, knee breeches, low shoes and silver buckles. As the countenances of these gentlemen offered nothing very interesting to the multitude, whisperings arose, little by little, among the spectators. Then some bold spirits ventured a jest or two upon the fattest or the boldest of the townsmen, and at last the boldest of the Lazzaroni slipped between the soldiers' legs to collect the wax that was running down from the lighted tapers. After the craftsmen, the religious orders marched past from the Dominicans to the Carthusians, from the Carmelites to the Capuchins. They advanced slowly, their eyes cast down, their step austere, their hands on their hearts. Some faces were rubicund and shining with large cheekbones and rounded chins, herculean heads upon bullnecks. Some thin and livid, with cheeks hollowed by suffering and penitence, and with the look of living ghosts. In short, here were the two sides of monastic life. At this moment, Nunziata and Gelsomina, two charming damsels, taking advantage of an old corporal's politeness, pushed forward their pretty heads into the first rank. The break in the line was conspicuous, but the sly warrior seemed just a little lax in the matter of discipline. Oh, there is Father Bruno, said Gelsomina suddenly. Good day, Father Bruno. Hush, cousin, people do not talk to the procession. How absurd! He is my confessor. May I not say good morning to my confessor? Silence, chatterboxes! Who was that spoke? Oh, my dear, it was Brother Kukutsa, the begging friar. Where is he? Where is he? There he is, along there, laughing into his beard. How bold he is! Ah, God in heaven, if we were to dream of him! While the two cousins were pouring out endless comments upon the capuchins and their beards, the capes of the canons and the surplices of the seminarists, the Ferozzi, came running across 
from the other side to re-establish order with the help of their gunstocks. By the blood of my patron saint, cried the stentorian voice, if I catch you between my finger and thumb, I will straighten your back for the rest of your days. Who are you falling out with, Gennaro? With this accursed hunchback, who has been worrying my back for the last hour, as though he could see through it. It is a shame, returned the hunchback in a tone of lamentation. I have been here since last night. I slept out of doors to keep my place, and here is this abominable giant comes to stick himself in front of me like an obelisk. The hunchback was lying like a Jew, but the crowd rose unanimously against the obelisk. He was, in one way, their superior, and majorities are always made up of pygmies. Hi, come down from your stand. Hi, get off your pedestal. Off with your hat, down with your head. Sit down, lie down. This revival of curiosity expressing itself in invectives evidently betokened the crisis of the show. And indeed, the chapters of canons, the clergy and bishops, the pages and chamberlains, the representatives of the city and the gentlemen of the king's chamber now appeared and finally the king himself, who, bareheaded and carrying a taper, followed the magnificent statue of the Virgin. The contrast was striking. After the grey-headed monks and pale novices came brilliant young captains, affronting heaven with their points of their moustaches, riddling the latticed windows with killing glances. Following the procession in an absent-minded way and interrupting the holy hymns with scraps of most unorthodox conversation. Did you notice, my dear Doria, how like a monkey the old Marquesa da Quasparta takes her raspberry eyes? Her nose takes the colour of the eyes. What fine bird is showing off to her? It is the Cyrenian. I beg your pardon? I have not seen that name in the golden book. He helps the poor Marquis to bear his cross. The officer's profane allusion was lost in the prolonged murmur of admiration that suddenly rose from the crowd, and every gaze was turned upon one of the young girls, who was strewing flowers before the Holy Madonna. She was an exquisite creature, her head glowing in the sunshine, her feet hidden amid roses and broom blossom, she rose, tall and fair, from a pale cloud of incense. Like some seraphic apparition, her hair, of velvet blackness, fell in curls halfway down her shoulders. Her brow, white as alabaster and polished as a mirror, reflected the rays of the sun. Her beautiful and finely arched black eyebrows melted into the opal of her temples. Her eyelids were fast down, and the cold black fringe of lashes veiled a glowing and liquid glance of divine emotion. The nose, straight, slender, 
in cut by two easy nostrils, gave to her profile that character of antique beauty which is vanishing day by day from the earth. A calm and serene smile, one of those smiles that have already left the soul, and not yet reached the lips, lifted the corners of her mouth with a pure expression of infinite beatitude and gentleness. Nothing could be more perfect than the chin that completed the faultless oval of this radiant countenance. Her neck of a dead white joined her bosom in a delicious curve and supported her head gracefully like the stalk of a flower moved by a gentle breeze. A bodice of crimson velvet spotted with gold outlined her delicate and finely curved figure and held in by means of a handsome gold lace the countless folds of a full and flowing skirt that fell to her feet like those severe robes in which the Byzantine painters preferred to drape their angels. She was indeed a marvel, and so rare and modest of beauty had not been seen within the memory of men. Among those who had gazed most persistently at her was observed the young prince of Brancaleone, one of the foremost nobles of the kingdom. Handsome, rich and brave, he had, at five and twenty, outdone the lists of all known Don Juans. Fashionable young women spoke very ill of him and adored him in secret. The most virtuous made it their rule to fly from him. So impossible did resistance appear. All the young madcaps had chosen him for their model for his triumphs robbed many Miltiades of sleep, and with better cause. In short, to get an idea of this lucky individual, it will be enough to know that, as a seducer, he was the most perfect thing that the devil had succeeded in inventing in this progressive century. The prince had dressed out for the occasion in a sufficiently grotesque costume, which he wore with ironic gravity and cavalier ease. A black satin doublet, knee breeches, embroidered stockings and shoes with gold buckles formed the main portions of his dress, over which trailed a long brocaded open-sleeved robe lined with ermine and a magnificent diamond-hilted sword. On account of his rank, he enjoyed the rare distinction of carrying one of the six gilded staves that supported the plume and embroidered canopy. As soon as the procession moved on again, Elagio of Brancaleone gave a side glance to a little man as red as a lobster who was walking almost at his side and carrying in his right hand with all the solemnity that he could muster, his excellency's hat. He was a footman in gold-laced livery, and we beg leave to give a brief sketch of his history. Trespolo was the child of a poor but thieving parents, 
and on that account was early left an orphan. Being a pleasure, he studied life from an eminently social aspect. If we are to believe a certain ancient sage, we are all in the world to solve a problem. As to Traspolo, he desired to live without doing anything. That was his problem. He was, in turn, a sacristan, a juggler, an apothecary's assistant, and a chicharone. And he got tired of all these callings. Begging was, to his mind, too hard work. And it was more trouble to be a thief than to be an honest man. Finally, he decided in favour of contemplative philosophy. He had a passionate preference for the horizontal position and found the greatest pleasure in the world in watching the shooting of stars. Unfortunately, in the course of his meditations, this deserving man came near to dying of hunger, which would have been a great pity, for he was beginning to accustom himself not to eat anything. But as he was predestined by nature to play a small part in our story, God showed him grace for that time and sent to his assistance. Not one of his angels, the rogue was not worthy of that, but one of Brancaleone's hunting dogs. The noble animal sniffed round the philosopher and uttered a little charitable growl that would have done credit to one of the brethren of Mount St. Bernard. The prince, who was returning in triumph from hunting, and who, by good luck, had that day killed a bear and ruined a countess, had an odd inclination to do a good deed. He approached the plebeian, who was about to pass into the condition of a corpse, stirred the thing with his foot, and seeing that there was still a little hope, bade his people bring him along. End of section 1 Read by Nadia Fernandez.